Welcome to Inside Story with RLC. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Lynn Adams about behaviors. How are you today, Dr. Adams? I'm doing well. Thank you, Tristan. How are you? I'm great. Really excited that you're here. So first, I just want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do for work, and what you studied, and how you got to where you are. Okay. Um, I won't start at the very beginning, um, because it's a very <laughs> long story, but um, I've been a speech-language pathologist since 1980, so I've been doing this for a long, long time. Amazing. Um, and I did my undergrad and graduate and master's degree at Florida State, and then I went ahead and got my doctorate. I knew I wasn't really satisfied just with my master's degree because I really knew I wanted to be a university professor. That was what was back in the back of my head. And so I went back to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville and got my doctorate. And um, I've taught in Tennessee, I taught in Missouri, I taught in Virginia and Georgia. And I recently retired from teaching and moved back to North Carolina where my family is. And so now I am a semi-retired speech language pathologist working in the real world for what I feel like is probably the first time in my life. Uh, <laughs> I'll take that back. In the eighties, I was a school speech pathologist. So I do, I do understand the real world to a degree. Right. It's really been eye-opening to be back in, you know, direct service, providing direct services to families because as a university professor, you're doing research, you're teaching classes, you're talking about things in sort of the, the perfect fully funded world. And right. then you go out into the imperfect, marginally funded world, and you find out um, that uh, a lot of what you were talking about may not really apply. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I've been, I've been um, with a private practice here in town, um, in the little okay. town in North Carolina where my family is. I've uh, been with them for about three and a half years, and I specialize in birth to five. That's always been my my population. Um, I knew yeah. early on in my master's program that I was not working with adults. I love adults, <laughs> but they don't want me to be their speech pathologist, and I don't want to be their speech pathologist, so we can put that out. But I'll sit on the floor and work with a baby for hours and love every second of it. So um, that's what makes the world go round. We're all different. We all have different skills and different abilities. Yeah. So that's what I, I do. Uh, like I said, private practice. We provide services through early intervention. So I see children um, used to go into the home, but of course, COVID changed that. And right. then we had... Um, because I went to a semi-retired position, I didn't have the travel time to go into the home. So we offered the parents okay. the opportunity to come to our clinic. We know that that ideally early intervention is provided in the home, but we had a number of parents who said, we will happily come to you. They want to be in the room with their child. And so I'm, I'm really doing what I did in the home, in the environment of in the office. clinic. And, yeah. and it's working out really well. So I'm excited for that. That's awesome. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. So you said you're located in North Carolina in the clinic. So if listeners were going to find you somewhere, like if there's social media or a website, where would they find you? They can find the private practice um, on Facebook. It's called, I work for more M O O R E pediatric therapy services, um, M P T S because everybody needs a good acronym. And right. <laughs> They can find us on Facebook. We have a nice Facebook presence. It's a it's a great practice. When I started three years ago, there were about 15 of us maybe or 20. And I think we almost have 50 employees now. 
So wow. PT and OT, and it's all pediatrics. So uh, we rarely get a child older than 10 or 12. Right. Some of our clinicians work in a local charter school, so they may see older kids. But for the most part, we're seeing um, a lot of young children. We work very closely with the early intervention program for the state of North Carolina. So we get their direct referrals for children okay. who might need PT, OT, or speech services. Wow. Amazing. I'll have the website and Facebook in the show notes. So if listeners are looking for that, they can find you there. Super. Awesome. All right. Well, let's just jump right in. So like I said, today we're talking about behaviors. So my first question for you is, are behaviors communication? That's a great question. Yes. And this may be news to people, but yes, behaviors are communication. They have communicative value. Now, before I start talking further, let me set a little foundation here so that we're all talking about the same terms in the same way. You know, the old university professor comes out and says, wait, you have to define your terms. (laughs) Particularly, I think for parents who might be listening, they've probably heard the word communication. They probably heard the word speech. And they've heard the word language, and they may think that they're all interchangeable, and they're really not. So let's make sure we know what we're talking about so that when I use the term, everybody knows what I'm referencing. Let's start with speech. It's actually what our lips and teeth and tongue and all those things do to make the sounds. So it's really the sound system that we're focused on when we're talking about speech. Okay. When we talk about language, now we're talking about the words and the grammar and the meanings of words and how we make phrases and sentences and how we have a conversation. Right, right. Speech with language that becomes communication. So communication is a broader term that speech and language sort of fit under. Does that make sense? Yes. So back to your question. Yes. Our behaviors communication, they certainly are. And it's our job or our challenge, I guess, to figure out what that behavior is communicating, because we get very focused on what the behavior looks like. Right. You know, he's banging his head. He's screaming. He's throwing toys. We get all focused on that, but we don't remember to look at, well, why is he doing that? Mm -hmm. Why is that happening? And if we don't look at the why, all we're doing is sort of putting a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage because we're like, oh, he's banging his head. Well, he stopped banging his head. Now we're all better. No, that will morph into a new behavior if we don't meet if we don't meet the child's needs. I wanted to share a quote. I found this and um, I wanted to share it because it just spoke to me um, by a woman named Ashley Warner. It's just beautiful. Beneath every behavior, there is a feeling. And beneath each feeling is a need. And when we meet the need, rather than focus on the behaviors, we begin to deal with the cause, not the symptom. Wow. (laughs) I read that. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Don't you love it when a meme actually goes and just resonates in front of you? (laughs) And resonates with you. (laughs) Thank you. I've been looking for the, I didn't know I wanted this meme and I did. So, and that's exactly what she's so correct that when we just focus on what the behavior looks like, we don't figure out what the need is. And if that need, the behaviors will continue. They'll just change the way they look. Exactly. What we find out real fast is that what a behavior looks like doesn't have a whole lot to do with what its function or its purpose is. Right. 
And, and I, again, I think we get trained up. Any, anybody who's been in a basic psychology 101 class has heard of behavior modification. So we need to look at the behavior and then we um, will give a consequence to the behavior and that will make the behavior continue or decrease, increase or decrease. Right. And that's true. There's a lot of truth in that. But what we forget is the first part of that lesson was look at the antecedent what came first what exactly before the behavior because that's where your information is not in oh are we going to put him in time out are we going to take the toy away are we going to lose a, a happy sticker or whatever we can spend a lot of time on the consequences and not pay attention to the antecedent and if we don't pay attention to the antecedent we're not going to figure out what's going on Everybody's going to be frustrated. I promise. <laughs> Not just mommy and daddy and grandma and grandpa and Uncle Susie, but or Uncle Susie. Okay, maybe. Why not? Um, <laughs> and Uncle Fred and and the speech pathologist and the, the physical therapist and everybody in, involved in this child's life because we're paying attention to what we're going to do after the behavior happened rather than deal right. with the behavior itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to really figure out what's going on, why is this happening, and what can we do to make sure if either the trigger goes away, sometimes that's what we can do, we can get rid of the trigger, or, well, we can't get rid of the trigger because the school bell is going to ring every day at three o'clock. Exactly. Stop that. So, hmm, what am I going to do? We have to mm-hmm. figure out what we can do to make that, um, to deal with that situation. And so identifying the trigger is going to be our first thing. Right. So talking about triggers, what do behaviors tell us? Like, is there, you, you said there's an antecedent, so there's something that's causing it. So normally, what is that thing that's causing the behavior? In the broadest sense, I think we need to assume that it's an unmet need. Okay. That's what we just need to say, you know what? Something is not being met for this child. This is an unmet need. And if we continue to not meet the need, the behavior will continue. So of course. That's the thing, is we focus on that this is something is not being met in this child. They're not getting some need met for whatever reason. And if we don't tease out what the antecedent is, what that unmet need might be, then we're just going to be spending a lot of time dealing with the consequences. And that's not going to change the long-term outcome. It's going to help us in the short term. You know, right. Yes, I can stop it for that for the remainder of my 30 minute session with that child. But that doesn't mean it won't be back the next time I see that child because I haven't right. met them. Um, so one of the things that we want to make sure we're doing is that we are really looking for this cause. And it's okay. a challenge. I understand completely. Parent, I've, I've heard this so many times, so many times people say the behavior just came out of nowhere. It just happens for no reason. And <laughs> I understand it seems like that. I understand. I know with my 40 some years experience <laughs> that it is not that random. It's not that out of the blue. But what usually happens is we're not often attending to see what the trigger might be. You know, right. because, we have because I'm dealing with your sibling or I was reaching over here to get a toy for you to play with. And when I turn around, wow, what happened? I don't know, because you're really upset. <laughs> and then we think, well, just it just happened. It just it just happened. I don't even know what he was thinking about. It just happened. And it almost never just happens. 
Right. So what we have to be willing to do is be, you know, put on our detective hat and go on an investigation. That may mean that we need to enlist somebody else to help us. It's hard to observe your child if you're the parent when you're playing with your child. Right. <laughs> ruins the play because you're too busy going, oh, let me write that down now. And the <laughs> playing with me. This is, I right. don't like this play. So we really have to, maybe have to enlist a, um, our spouse or our, our auntie or somebody who can help us out so we can then take that step back and go, what is happening here? Right. What, and, what, and what do I think the trigger might be? Now, does that mean I'm going to trigger this child repeatedly? I don't suggest that. No, <laughs> but I do, have, I do have to occasionally test a hypothesis, right? So I right. go. I think it's when I say this. So I, I, I think, okay, well, I'm going to wait. He's kind of calm. I'm going to say it. Oh, he didn't like it. Okay, now I've got. I think maybe this is the issue. I'm beginning okay. to in on that. Um, but I don't want parents to think that they have to do this, you know, till they see the behavior twenty times, so they can feel certain that that's the trigger. I think you have to trust your gut and say, you know what? Now that I think about it, every time I bring out this particular toy, he gets upset. Oh, geez, maybe it's the toy. Right. Maybe that toy makes a weird high-pitched sound that doesn't mm. bother me, but bothers him for to no end. So, and then I can high test that hypothesis by taking the batteries out of the toy and then look, the sound goes away and he loves it. Ah. See, I am a detective. I figured that yeah. out. And so that's that's really what I have to I encourage parents to do. You sort of have to take that step back, look at the whole situation and see if you can figure out what is going on, what is happening. Oh, he doesn't like that high pitched sound. Well, then my solution would not be to put him in time out for screaming, but right. to be getting rid of the high pitched sound. And when I do, oh, look, he's a happier camper. This is so cool. Now I know. And now I can go tell everybody, don't put the batteries back in that toy. Because for <laughs> right now, at least, he can't tolerate that sound. And we'll work on the tolerating the sound later. Right. We can work on that in a controlled environment. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. we just let him, we, we can't, we don't do the child a, a service if we let him think, oh, don't worry, you'll never have to hear this again. Uh, yeah, you will. Right. Like I said. Yeah, we don't like the school bell. Guess what? <laughs> it's been around <laughs> all day long, on and off, you know? Exactly. I mean, in a middle school, good heavens, they ring all the time for changing classes. And if you've got a, a ring-sensitive kid, so what's the solution? We can't turn off the bells. Well, here, kid, put on these noise-canceling headphones, and it'll make your life a whole lot easier. Exactly. And, I, and I, again, I've had people say, well, you know, oh, gosh, now he's got the crutch of the headphones. No, he's got the protection of the headphones until we can figure out a way to deal with that awful bell that's more that lets this child feel comfortable and safe. Because right now he doesn't. Now we have an unmet need, which is this is creeping me out. This is freaking me out. This is hurting my ears. And we know that about kids, particularly kids on the spectrum. We know that their hearing can be hyper acute sometimes. They can hear and perceive things that we don't even notice. And right. they're, distracted. they're distracted by a paper rustling and we didn't even hear the paper rustling. So we have to really recognize, and, and again, that's that, taking that step back and looking at the whole thing instead of just this one segment of the situation. Right. Um, 
Another thing that um, that behaviors we know about behaviors is that if we offer a child choices between two desired things, do you want to wear your pink shirt or your purple shirt? We increase positive behavior. Oh, because that's what kids don't get offered a lot. Right. It's like you're wearing this today. I didn't want to wear. I wasn't feeling that today. Exactly. I was feeling florals, and I need florals. So right. when we offer a choice, we improve behavior outcomes. When we increase language or communication skills, we improve behavior. It's a fascinating thing. If I can communicate better, my problem behaviors go down. Well, there we go. There we wow. go. Now we know that relationship there. Exactly. It's fascinating when you see a child. And, and by language doesn't mean that the child may be saying, Mommy, I would like some juice. They may be bringing me the cup for the juice and putting it in my hand and looking at me right. briefly. And that, that's communication. It doesn't have to be, right. mommy, I would like to do please. Putting that cup in my hand, that's communication. You just let me know what you want. And if I, if I, then if I do the thing of tell me juice, tell me juice, tell me juice, tell me juice, I may see behaviors come back up. Why? Because I didn't come here to get a speech therapy lesson. I came here to get some juice. Give me right. some juice and then we can talk about how you want me to get it next time. Right. You know, we can expand skills later, but meet that need first. Because if we, again, an unmet need, and we've all experienced that. This is not, this is not the, the purview of children. Um, all of us have experienced unmet needs. As we get older, our unmet needs are a little more complicated and right. sometimes but we still have them. And we also feel the same way a kid does when our needs are unmet. We feel frustrated, we feel anxious, we may be afraid. And when we get fearful and anxious and afraid, guess what happens? We get crabby, we get mm -hmm. mouthy, we get angry. <laughs> the thing that you really shouldn't be angry at, but we're like, I'm mad at this laptop because it won't cooperate with me. Go. That's a good use of your energy. Be mad. And, and, <laughs> right. and we all do it because that's how we are. We we um, humans don't like to be frustrated or fearful. And frustration and fear are almost always the basis of anger. And that's another great maybe little lesson for parents is that your child is angry. No, they're not really angry. They're fearful or they're anxious, and that that's manifesting as anger, because that's what humans do. When we get scared, some of us get mad. We get angry right. and it's all, but it's coming from fear. And if we remember that about ourselves and other adults, first off, we'd get a whole lot more accomplished in the world and we'd be happier. <laughs> but when mm -hmm. we remember that with children, we can go, oh, okay, I gotcha. Yeah, nobody likes an unmet need, nobody. No. It's no, I want my needs met. Darn it. <laughs> exactly. That's how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so my next question is, especially when you say um, anger is fear and frustration, this is in a similar vein. What would be the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown? Because those are often seen as anger. Exactly. Um, another great question, by the way, too, um, because, again, remember, we don't use speech, language and communication interchangeably. 
we can't use tantrum and meltdown interchangeably. They're two exactly. very, very different things. Both can be intense. Both can be loud. Both can be upsetting. But only one is indicative of a significant unmet, unmet need. Only one. Okay. And that's the meltdown. The tantrum is the tantrum start and stop quickly. Okay. And almost always the tantrum comes from the child being told no. Ah, of course. Or, or that now is not the time that we're, it's been, yeah. Um, I, if, if mom comes in and says, it's time for bed and I don't want to go to bed, what am I going to do? I'm going to tantrum. I don't want to go to bed. No, I want to stay awake. Oh, and when that doesn't work, if that's ignored, then I'll go to, oh, I'm thirsty. I need water. I need more water. I have to potty. I have to potty again. I need more water. Lots of excuses. Yeah, we may go from tantrum to negotiation. um, And (laughs) if you're the parent who's now moved on to negotiation, good job ignoring the tantrum, but we still have an unmet need. So, right. But in this case, the unmet need is, but I don't want to follow the rules. I know nobody, not, not everybody does. You're fine. You, we're going to bed and you'll be fine. So that, right. that very rapid, I'm crying, I'm stomping my feet, I'm yelling and everything. And then if I can turn it off just like that, if I can go from, <laughs> oh, okay, that's your sign that it's not a meltdown. That's a tantrum. Okay. Tantrums are within my control as a kid. Kids can control a tantrum. A meltdown is not usually within their control, not their immediate control. They can get it under control, but it's not going to be on and off very quickly. Um, I'm, I'm always, when I would do lectures um, in class and then at, at workshops and trainings, I would always remind people of an episode of the Andy Griffith show. Now, um, I probably saw it um, in the original first time through, but you're young, so I'm sure you've seen it in a rerun. <laughs> But right. one of the early ones, I think it's in the first year because Opie's pretty young and this is Opie. There's a, a new boy moves to town and he teaches Opie how to be a bit of a brat. He teaches him how to hold his breath, how to you know, lay on the floor. And, and, and literally, it's, so, it's such a perfect illustration that I would tell parents, go Google, the, just Google Opie having a fit because <laughs> then you'll get a chance of this. Because Opie comes in the courthouse, and you know how Pa is. You know, Andy's very chill. You know, right. He's very chill. And Opie comes in, he's like, Pa, um, I want more allowance. And Pa says, no. No. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. No, your allowance is good. And so Opie goes, oh! <laughs> says, what are you doing? And Opie says, I'm holding my breath until I turn blue. It's like, Pa says, well, okay, just don't get your shirt dirty. Um, you know, <laughs> something, something to that effect, you know? Right, exactly. And so then that doesn't work. So Opie starts stomping his feet and, you know, and, and Pa right. says, what are you doing? And Opie says, oh, yeah, I'm, ha- I'm, I'm stomping my feet. It's like, well, okay, that's nice, son, and goes back to whatever he's doing. Well, finally, Opie very purposely lays on the floor, and he's slamming his hands on the floor and kicking his feet, and Paul looks over at his desk and says, what are you doing, son? And <laughs> Opie, in the midst of all this, Wah! says, I'm having a fit, and I can't stop. Wah! Like, there you go. There you go. That's exactly- <laughs> That's a tantrum. I'm having a fit and I can't stop. Man, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And Paul had it all figured out already. He knew what he was facing. But we have, a lot of us have been suckered into reacting to the holding of the breath or the stomping of the feet or the, I had a parent who told me once, oh, oh, we, we work really hard never to upset him. Like, um, <laughs> well, he's three now, and that's probably fairly easy to do. Right. Um, he's going to go out of the house to a pre-K classroom and um, he's not going to get everything he wants when he wants it. And he's not at all. And we have to help him know that you can be upset and you can have a little tantrum and that's okay because every kid's, I I don't know how to get rid of tantrums. Okay. If anybody was listening, hoping that I would tell them how to stop a tantrum, (laughs) I think that's part of normal development. And I don't know how to do that. Meltdowns (laughs) are not. Meltdowns are not necessarily part of normal development. Um, the thing about the meltdown is that it's it looks like it comes out of nowhere, but there's been a slow, gradual burn up to that point. Right. You Again, if you can take that step back, you, the parent will say, oh, gosh, I did see him get frustrated because um, I picked him up from school and told him we had to do errands. And this is one of my favorite lessons to parents. Stop that. Yeah. Stop. Your kid's been in school holding it together all day long. And now you want to do what? You want to go to the uh, drugstore and the grocery store. And we have to pick up some dry cleaning too. And that line is always really long and it's hot. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been holding it together all day at school, mom. I just don't really, I don't think I can. And then we lose it. And this is not a tantrum at that point in time. This is a kid saying, uh, uh, uh-uh, uh, I don't have anything left. Uh, 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 right. I can't do this. Now. I can't do this now. So that meltdown is, um, is massive. It usually results in, um, crying that maybe can't stop to the point where you've mm-hmm. got the child who's doing that. <laughs> right. Crying. They have, they are in it. No amount of you saying, shh, calm, but often that doesn't help. Sometimes it makes it worse, but mm-hmm. it's not one of those times where you can say, oh, okay, we won't do errands now. And then they just go, oh, okay. That doesn't ha- No, that child is still <laughs> because they can't quite get out of it. It's a bigger reaction and it's mm-hmm. probably involving much more of the brain than just that little bit of that prefrontal lobe. It was like, I really want that toy. I really want that toy. I really don't <laughs> want to go to bed. I really don't want to go to bed. That's right. a very different thing. And a lot of meltdowns have to do with sensory overload or sensory fatigue and that doesn't mean that, no, he's been hearing loud noises all day. No, he's been hearing somebody talk to him all day. That's all it takes. Right. You, know, you don't have to have a marching band to, to trigger my meltdown. No, you're just asking me one more question. Right. And I've been asking questions all day. And I keep using school as an example because this is the most common thing that I hear. My kid comes home from school and he gets off the bus, falls into my arms, and then all heck breaks loose. Right. He he's crying unconsolably. He won't eat. He won't. He can't sit. He's just angry. He's frustrated. All of these things are coming up. What do I do? And I said, well, let me tell you another story, because everything I've learned, uh, some child and their parents taught me. I wish I could. Oh, yes. All by myself. No, (laughs) some parent told me. And so I'm going to tell you the story about Carrie. 
And Carrie's mom and I have a longstanding friendship. Um, she has two children, both of whom are on the spectrum, as was her ex-husband. So um, she was the only neurotypical in the home. Wow. And she called me one day really, really upset. She goes, I, th I think I need to find counseling or medication or something for um, Carrie because something bad's happening. I'm like, okay, oh my gosh, what is it? What is it? And she said, Carrie gets off the bus and she looks so sad and she doesn't say very much to me at all. And she comes in the house and she puts her book bag down and she goes in her bedroom and gets in her closet and stays there for about 30, 45 minutes. Oh, wow. What should I do? I said, I said, well, my first instinct was to be flip. And I was like, okay, bite your tongue. Don't be flip. I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, how does she how does she seem when she comes out of the closet? <gasps> she's fine. She's back to her old self. She's happy. I said, I wouldn't do a thing. And she said, really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, well, if you're a very smart daughter, figured out how to decompress. And right. that's really what this is. She had held it together all day at school. She had sat in that chair that wasn't comfortable with the tag that was scratching the back of her neck and her shoes were too tight sometimes and then they were too loose and that seam in the toe of her socks was aggravating her all day long and they wouldn't let her take her shoes off to fix it so she just had to deal with it quietly and she got home and she was like and she didn't come in and sling the book bag and she didn't she wasn't aggressive she would just come in she'd go in her closet she would close the door she'd stay in there from 30 to 45 minutes and she'd come out and be like hey how are you i'm hungry i need a snack <laughs> Wow, you're a smart kid. I'm right. Do that now. I, I, want, I want to do that. I'm just going to go in the closet and I'll be out in 45 minutes and I'd like a snack when I get out, please. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> but it's so amazing that this kid figured that out. On exactly. And of course, our adult instinct was, oh, she's so sad. Oh, my goodness. She's, she's isolating herself away from everything. Yeah, she's having a break. And yeah. breaks are good. breaks are good, and let's let her keep having that break. And we right. did, and she went through it. And the next year, there was much less of that because whatever was happening in that grade level had she either learned the skill that she wasn't learning, or she expanded her social skills, and whatever it was wasn't a problem. And she's a young adult now, and she does not go sit. As far as I know, she doesn't go sit for forty-five minutes. But I have every confidence that if she felt like she needed to, she'd be like, um, "I need a break. See ya." And she would go and and go in her bedroom and close the door and have her quiet time. Right. That's a, she knows that that's what she needs. Um, so. How do you know for sure it's not a tantrum? Well, like I said, tantrums turn on and off very quickly. How is it? How do you know right. it's a meltdown? Usually your child can't talk or articulate what's happening. So this is not the time to go, what's the matter? Tell mommy, tell mommy, tell daddy. Daddy wants to know. Right. Or, or tell Mrs. Jones why you're upset. No. Mm -mm. Make the child safe. So right. They're not in environment where they, if they're going to thrust themselves backwards in frustration that they don't hit the cinder block wall, let's make them safe. Exactly. They're going to bang their head. And some kids do. And I always tell parents, I know that looks terribly, terribly problematic and it's not a great behavior, but I also have seen kids modulate that. I, I saw a kiddo who mom said, she gave me, Oh, he bangs his head at home. Every time he's frustrated, he's going to do it here. Well, we were in a classroom at a school where the carpet was glued onto the concrete floor. Oof. Not the night she 
you know, padded, soft carpeting at home, you know? Right. Thing, yeah. So one time he went bonk and he's like, oh, he kind of sat up and looked around and he never did it again because it was like, that didn't, that didn't do what banging his head at home did for him. Right. And also, first off, it hurt. <laughs> it got, it, <laughs> and secondly, all the adults in the room, because we sort of ha- had mom hush, ignored it. We didn't even comment on it. And he was like, oh, oh, okay. okay. That, it didn't get the know. reaction. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you don't, you don't care about that. Well, I, yes, I do care. I don't want you to bang your head, but I, if I give it a big reaction, then I have empowered that behavior. As right. A like, Oh, you want to, you want to watch me get my way? <laughs> want to watch me get that n- another cookie after I've already had five? Yeah. Why? Bang, bang, bang. Cookie. Yeah. Uh, right. And I always, and I tell parents, if your child protested for 15 minutes and you gave in at minute 16, you have set his protest clock for 16 minutes the next time. And yeah. if you give in at 20, you set his clock for 21 minutes. And if you give in after an hour, yeah, you see where this is. going. So don't be right. surprised if you're now fighting with your child for an hour and a half because you basically trained him if you you, know, you basically said keep it up keep it up keep, i'll give in eventually i'll give in eventually i'm just immortal i can't help it i have to cook right supper. <laughs> and that's the truth you know that's the truth mama's got to cook supper or, or daddy's right. got to cook supper and there's laundry that that's buzzing in the dryer and i got to get it out and and the kids like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if i can protest long enough i'll wait and and i don't know about you but kids can do things for 45 minutes that i can't tolerate for 10 so oh, I, yes. You know, I'm like, oh, yes, here, have a cookie. Have the whole bag. Go, go play outside. Right. Go sit it's down. Go play outside. <laughs> it's not running that hard. So what we, what we do have to do, like I said, the child is not going to be calmed down by our voice. They're not going to be calmed by touch. Sometimes the worst thing you can do is touch the child. Right. Now, and I say sometimes because there's no one size fits all. Part of observing... Um, and seeing what the triggers are, are also seeing what behaviors help calm the child. Is the child okay. sitting in their chair rocking their own body? Mm-hmm. Um, calming. Cal- I'm assuming that's a calming behavior. If they're um, if they're chewing on their thumb really aggressively, I don't want them to do that. But they're chilling themselves. Oh, as a calming behavior. Some calming behaviors are um, more socially acceptable than others. Right. So. And so we have to recognize that and we want to keep the behaviors as appropriate for the whole world um, if they happen to have this tantrum or meltdown in, in public, and they will. Um, right. And we need to make sure that we pick coping strategies and, and um, behaviors that can help calm that are also not going to draw more attention to right. what is already in a, a, an attention-filled situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You have to figure out what the calming techniques are. And there is no, there's, yeah, yeah, no, there's not a book that says, here are the calming techniques. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I wish there was, yes, no, that we don't have that. So we have to be willing to kind of think, okay, what did he like? Well, he loves to jump. Okay, that's probably a potential. My experience tells me rocking, jumping, sometimes being burritoed up in a blanket, swaddled up in a right. blanket, even though it fits. That can be really helpful. Um, a beanbag chair that I can hunker down in and squeeze myself with. Some deep pressure, maybe a, um, a compression vest. 
or a weighted vest or a weighted blanket. Right. Those may be the things. And what the what's incumbent upon parents to do is to create their own little toolbox. Right. Um, toolbox, although it's sometimes, yes, you should have, there should be probably a bag in the car that has their favorite stimmy toys in it. You know, the, the glitter wand, the um, squishy ball thing, the right. ball, easy, stretchy, whatever's. Yeah. Have those available because if they work, um, sometimes they can work when you see the child beginning to ramp up. To okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's get you away from the sensory thing that's bothering you. So I'll turn the radio down in the car because I know, and you're hot. So I'll turn the air conditioner up. I'll turn the radio down and I'll give you your favorite squishy, squeezy, stretchy toy. Right. That, that may work. So um, it's really important that they, they figure out what might work to calm and to have as much of that available as almost all the time. It's not always going to be available, but most of the time we want to make sure that it's available. Um, So I think that, I think that answers your question. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. That was amazing. This concludes the first part to our two-part episode with Dr. Adams. Please tune in next time when we finish our discussion on behaviors.